following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. I've been really, really surprised by whether it be a show or a movie. Now, there are two movies, two movies that caught me completely off guard. And I'm not telling you to go out and watch these movies. I'm not throwing some stamp on them or anything like that. I enjoyed them. And they caught me completely, like, like jaw open up, like, onto my chest. Like, did that just happen? And those two movies are this, The Sixth Sense, all right, and The Book of Eli. Two movies that I watched that I got to the end, and I was just like, okay, wait a second. And and Sixth Sense, I watched it again immediately. And that's clear back when we were doing VHS tapes, okay? So I had to rewind it. Come on, hurry up, hurry up. You got to be kind to rewind, you know? So um, all the way back, and then watch that through. I was like, how did I miss that? How did I miss it? Now, I'm not going to ruin it for you. I'm not going to ruin it for you. But I love movies that do a masterful job of giving you hints that are just beyond comprehension, if you will, until the big reveal happens. And you're like, oh, my goodness. It's like cinematic brilliance at work. Now, I understand this is Sunday morning. I'm preaching to the choir here. I understand that, that when we for a while on Sunday mornings contemplate the brilliance of God's plan to save us, I know that I am speaking to the choir here because you understand it, the timing, the timing of when Jesus came into the world. It's God moving pieces into place. And when I mean pieces into place, I'm not talking about pieces on a chessboard here. I'm talking about nations, civilizations, empires, moving this piece, moving that piece. God always behind the scenes, making it happen. Previewing the gospel, Jesus coming into this world with the words of the prophets. Those words that they did not, that that his people did not quite get, did not quite understand. Some of them didn't even get it when Jesus was here. But those words of the prophets were preparing the way for the big reveal that would put all other revelations to shame. And the big reveal was this. Jesus came. God came into this world. He died. He arose. And he ascended back into heaven. That's the big reveal. That changed everything. But that isn't the only reveal of God's. There would be another one that would come after that. The next big reveal would be the unimaginable privilege of connecting to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. We can have a personal connection to it. And you might ask, how? How is that possible? You know something, brothers and sisters, baptism has always been a part of the church from the very beginning. And it is talked about a lot. You go to Google, all right? You type in baptism, Jesus and church, hit search and see how many hundreds of thousands of pages. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, there is so much written about this. 
What is it for? What is it about? Well, first of all, baptism. In the Greek, the word is baptizo. It means immersion. It means to be plunged, if you will, into water. It's been labeled something good number of years ago, and it's kind of a churchy word, so just hang with me here for a second. It has been labeled a sacrament. And like I said, I know that sounds kind of churchy, but it's not really complicated. A sacrament is something that connects us to God. And really, when it comes to the church, we've got two of them. You've got baptism, and you've got communion. So let's just dig into this a little bit deeper. Um... Zach's going to put it up here. Sacrament. If you're a note taker, now's your time, all right? We're going to define this. A sacrament. First of all, a sacrament is what? It is something instituted by Christ. Instituted, started, brought about by Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to warn you guys, we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit in the Word today. Now, last week we didn't have to do that. We kind of stayed in two places most of the time. Uh, We can't really do that this week. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit, so get your fingers ready, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. We'll come back to this first letter of Corinthians here in just a little bit. We're going to start here in verse 23 of chapter 11, though. This is Paul writing to the church, talking about the Lord's Supper, communion. This is what he says. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then it goes on to talk a little bit more about what communion is about and what communion is for and the way that we approach communion as brothers and sisters in Christ. If anybody asks you where communion came from, don't say the church. Communion came from Jesus. He's the one who got it started. That night, call it in the upper room, when he he was in those, those closest followers of his, and he talked about and he instituted this Communion. So, instituted by Christ, but that's not the only thing he instituted. Turn from there to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. When you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts together, because Acts also has some Jesus in it, all right? What I mean by that is if your Bible has red letters, meaning the words of Jesus, you're going to find some there in the beginning of the book of Acts because it it ends with Jesus leaving this earth and the apostles, the apostles with the Holy Spirit taking over. Okay? So, this though, when we look at these four, these four, five accounts put together, we get some of the final words of Jesus. And this is probably, I'm guessing, one of the last things that he said to his followers. We call it the Great Commission. And this is what Jesus said. Again, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end 
of the age. You see, baptism, not a church thing. Baptism as well was instituted by Christ. So that's the first thing about a sacrament. Second thing is this. A sacrament is a sign and seal of things taking place on earth and in heaven. Now on earth, that's the things we see, we touch, we taste, we can feel. It's the things that we experience in a physical way, all right? But the heaven, that's the spiritual thing. So there are things taking place spiritually and physically. You see, baptism is more than a represent, more than, than a symbol. A symbol is just a representation, all right? Sacrament accomplishes something. Change occurs in baptism, okay? Number three, sacraments find their power in the Holy Spirit. They do. You remove the Holy Spirit from the equation, you got nothing, okay? The Holy Spirit, sacraments find their power in them. Okay, now we're not going to talk about sacraments anymore. Like I said, sounds a little, sounds a little churchy. Let's talk a little bit more about baptism. A few things about water. A few things about it. Got some water right back there. Warm, ready to go. All right? There is nothing magical about that. Absolutely nothing. It is H2O. Okay? And some bleach, to be honest with you. Okay? <laughs> got to keep the thing smelling nice back there, you know? Okay. Uh, so that's, that's what you've got back there. And I imagine there's some people in this room who never got into a baptistry like that. You got into a creek, maybe? You got into a pond. My wife was baptized in a pond. All right, now I tell you, that thing did not smell very good. Not my wife. I'm talking about the pond. She smelled great. Okay. All right. Uh, So there's nothing magical about this water. It's just water. That's all there is to it. And we need to understand this. Water, when it comes to baptism, and faith are connected. Get this. The water means nothing without faith. Understand that? The water means nothing without without faith. It's kind of interesting. I kind of get I kind of get the one who gets picked many times it seems like it can't been going to camp for years and years and I always seem to find myself teaching a class when it comes to salvation whether it be, you know, 5-6 camp or the junior high camp. That's I kind of find myself there a lot of times and and I I've sat with countless junior hires and elementary age students and asked them this question. I've asked them, usually there's a dozen or so, or maybe a dozen and a half in front of me, say, how many baptisms do you think taking place in this group right here? Just ask them that question, and boy, it's so funny. I just, I'll just talk amongst yourselves, okay? So I just kind of sit back and watch for a little bit, and like, what about you? You've been baptized? You've been baptized? Where you been? You've been baptized? I mean, <laughs> you hear it again and again and again, and it just kind of work ripples throughout the whole group. And then you get to the end, so how many did you come up with? And they're like, 15, 15. I was like, wrong, wrong. I was like, in a group like this, I would guess, junior hires, let's go with junior hires. I'm guessing in a group like this, by this time in your life, we're looking at tens of thousands of baptisms, okay? Any of you ever gone off a diving board? Well, I'm not asking you, I was asking them. But you can put your hands up, that's good, that's good. That's what baptism is. It is immersion with water. And if there is no faith involved, take a bar of soap with you, because there's nothing else that's going to take place. Faith is right in the middle of this. Another example of that, guys, I've been reading through church history quite a bit here in the past few months. Uh, I started quite a while ago, took a little bit of a break, kind of heavy, but I dove back into it. uh, It was probably three or four weeks ago, and I started reading about the medieval period, which is the Middle Ages, or we call them the Dark Ages, right? And, And this is the fall of the Roman Empire over in that part of the world, Eastern and Western Europe, Northern Asia. You've got all of this taking place, and guys, it was chaotic, 
I mean, there were empires or rulers who would come up, and the only way that they could maintain power is they had to be strong. And there was one in particular by the name of Charlemagne. Maybe you've heard of this guy before. This guy was kind of like another King Saul from the Old Testament. He's like head and shoulders above everybody. He was a man of war, a warrior, strong. He was, his empire was powerful. Now, the ones who came after him, they were horrible. They were weak. So it didn't last very long. But let me tell you something about Charlemagne. He kind of worked hand in hand with kind of the state church at the time. It's getting pretty complicated by this time. All right. There were some people over on the eastern side of his empire, I guess that would actually be over here, eastern side, sorry. On the eastern side of his empire, they were called the Saxons. He's a man of war, and he went and converted them. Converted them. You know how he converted them? You follow what we say about God, or you die. Let me tell you something, that's not conversion. So what ended up happening were these mass, huge baptisms, where like entire, like, tribes were being baptized and there was no faith involved in any way whatsoever it was just we got to conform these people to us so they won't give us any trouble in the future and let me tell you something guys the results of that in the dark ages weren't pretty so baptism baptism is always connected with faith Acts 2.38, that's where we're going to turn next. Jesus instituted it, and then you fast forward to Acts 2.38, and you see taking place what he talked about. So turn to there. Acts 2.38, stick a finger there, we'll be there in just a second. I've got to let you know what's going on. By this time, Jesus has been gone for a few days. After he left and he ascended, he, his followers were told by a couple of angels to go back to Jerusalem and wait. They went back to Jerusalem and waited. Feast of Pentecost came about, the Holy Spirit fell upon these followers of Jesus Christ. They went out and they for the very first time preached the gospel. This is the gospel church, folks. We know what it is. The gospel is Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. And the first time it was ever preached was in the city of Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, here's the crazy thing about it. These, these 11, 12 guys were speaking these, this message of the gospel in their own language. These are, these are not highly educated men here. They're kind of rednecks, all right? And all of these people listening to them who had come from all many regions around to celebrate this feast were hearing them talk in their own dialect, in their own language. And they're like, how is this even possible? Holy Spirit was at work. The people were convicted. Can you imagine being a part of that crowd just for a moment? Just for a moment. Put yourself into that crowd just for a moment. These people, many of them, were in Jerusalem weeks ago during the Passover. I'd be, I w- I'd be willing to guess that some of them in that crowd were some who were screaming, crucify him. Crucify him. How do I know that? Because of what Acts 2 says. It says Peter looked at these people and he said, you killed the son of God. You crucified him. Don't you put it on the Romans. You did it. And he's alive. The people were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they looked at Peter and the rest of the apostles and say, what do we do? What do we do? See, they, they, they believed all right? They were convicted by the message. They asked, what shall we do? And in Acts 2.38, Peter gives them this answer. The very end 
the response, if you will, of the first gospel sermon ever preached. Peter said to them, repent, change. Stop your old way of life and start new. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be forgiven, be saved. And guess what, guys, that day? 3,000 people, 3,000 people were baptized. Talk about starting with a bang, are you serious? It's interesting though, as important as Acts 2.38 is, it is not the first time in scripture that we see God connecting salvation and water in some way. And where you might be going with this is, well yeah, John the Baptist. After all, Jesus himself was baptized he asked, Jesus asked John the Baptist to baptize. He said, I'm not can't baptize you. You baptize me. Jesus said, let us do this to fulfill all righteousness. It was a baptism of repentance. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I know, preacher, I've studied this before. What you're talking about is the Jewish ceremonial washings because those got instituted in the book of Leviticus and they even had these big old wash tub table made of bronze things, all right? And people would get in them, they'd get ceremonially clean for, for, these, for these things they have to do for sacrifices and stuff like that. Nope, 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 not talking about that. I'm talking about something that's even before that. I'm talking about it comes from the book of Exodus. Begin with Exodus chapter 14 through about 17. We looked at this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just talk to you about it for a second. And we looked at this just a few weeks ago and we talked about worship. And I said one of the first worship songs in the Bible. Remember that? The horse and rider fell into the sea. Yeah, they all died. Isn't that a great worship song? That's Anyway, all right, so, so what, what's taking place here is you've got Israel who are held captive in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. God did not forget them. He saw his people suffering through Moses. God led his people out of Egypt. You remember the words, Moses speaking, God speaking through him. Let my people go. Pharaoh, no, not going to do it. Finally, Pharaoh is broken. God brings the most powerful nation into the, in the world to its knees. Okay? And Pharaoh's like, after the death of his firstborn son, he says, go, just get, just leave. And the people of Israel leave. We're talking upwards of two million people here, folks. We're not talking about just a handful of folk, all right? And they're leaving. They take with them the riches of Egypt. It's a, it's a, it's a festive scene. But they get outside the city limits. They are on their way to the land of Canaan to worship. That's where they're going. There's not really a whole lot of a plan yet. They're just going. And guess what? Pharaoh changes his mind. He gets his army. And he takes off after him. And Israel's in this place. Before them is the Red Sea. There's no escape. Behind them, most powerful army in the world. God shields them with his power and his might, the cloud, the fire. And then he tells Moses, he said, you take your staff and you stretch it out over that water. And he does so. What happens? The waters part. And Israel walks through on dry land. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's on his way. He's bringing his army through. I mean, those guys are like, are you sure you want to do this, captain? All right, yes, we're going to do this. And God brought the waters over. The armies of Pharaoh. And God saved them through the Red Sea. Salvation. 
water. Preacher, come on now. That's a little bit of a stretch, isn't it? I mean, goodness gracious. We're talking Exodus 14 all the way to Acts 2.38. I don't see Pharaoh around anywhere. That is a stretch. Well, don't blame me. Blame the Apostle Paul. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul again writing to the church in Corinth. He's a little frustrated with them. They're some prideful people. They're making some mistakes. And he's using an example from the past to teach them to wise up. Okay? And this is how he gives them an example. First few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is what it says. Paul writing, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Oh my goodness, we've got the Apostle Paul at the prompting of the Holy Spirit writing about what took place in the wilderness outside of Egypt at the Red Sea and he's talking about baptism and communion. The spiritual food, the spiritual drink, the thing that Christ instituted many years later. Now they didn't have the bread and the wine that Jesus had. No, they had manna from heaven when they were hungry. And then they were thirsty. Now, we're not just talking they were a little parched. They, they, were, they were hurting. They needed water. We're talking about two million people, folks. And God spoke to Moses. He said, strike the rock. He struck the rock and water flowed. So we get this picture from Exodus of baptism and communion. And then Paul says, but don't make the mistakes they make. Look at the next verse. They felt, man... It's just days later they rejected God. And Paul says, do not do the same. Don't you follow in their footsteps. Israel was baptized, saved, freed like you. But don't follow in their footsteps. Quite a lesson. And if it wasn't Paul giving the lesson, I'd be like, that's a stretch. But Paul did it, so we'll let him. Here's the question. Why baptism? People have probably often asked that. Why baptism? Why is it important? Why is this set up in this way? See, baptism paints a picture of the past. You're a note taker. Here you go, all right? Baptism paints a picture of the past and the reality of the present. I want you to turn from here to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to go from there to just one more place and we'll be done bouncing around, okay? Colossians chapter 2, be prepared for that. Paul is now writing to the church in Colossae. And he's writing to them about something that was a pretty big deal going on. It wasn't just happening in Colossae, it was happening in other places as well. The Apostle Peter writes about it, the Apostle John writes about it. What was going on was something called Gnosticism. It's kind of a fancy word, but what it amounted to was there were people trying to separate the spiritual from the physical. And, and, And their teaching went to this point. Jesus wasn't God in a bodily form when he was here. He was merely spirit. There's a problem with that, folks. If he was not physical, if he was not in a body, he could not have died, be buried, and risen. And our faith is worthless. No, Jesus was a man, and he was God. 
Okay, so he's, he's battling that. He's battling that message. And this is what he tells them. We're going to begin in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2. You're going to find it right after First and Second Corinthians about a couple books later. Okay? This is what Paul says. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He says, don't be mixed up with this Gnosticism stuff. It's worthless. It's not real. And don't get tangled up in it. And he follows it with this incredibly powerful statement. If this is not underlined in your Bible, underline it. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is all man and he's also all God. Don't forget that, ever. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that sounds kind of confusing to us because we're not Jewish, we're not in that culture. But he wraps it all up with something that we do understand in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Do do, do you get this? Jesus, it's the gospel. Jesus died, he was buried, and he arose. And the same happens to us when we are buried. Do you understand, folks, when you are buried in the waters of baptism, you die. The old self dies so that you can be raised. When you combine faith and baptism, you see that this gift of baptism is an end for you, but it also is a beginning. And we are powerfully and wonderfully connected to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a big deal. Turn a few pages over. It won't be many. To the left, to Galatians. Paul in Galatians paints an incredibly powerful picture of baptism and what takes place. Galatians 3.27. Paul's actually talking about unity here. Galatians is kind of a mixed up book. People were really mixed up and Paul had to really straighten them out, okay? And in this particular portion of it, he's talking about the unity that exists within the body of Christ. Like in verse 26, he even says, all of, you are son- all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is something so powerfully, wonderfully mysterious about the way God works when it comes to faith, confession, repentance, and baptism. The guilt that we have been carrying, gone. Shame, it's history. Our sins are vanquished by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? We're talking about death and Life. There's one guy who, who 
who spelled this out quite well. And some of you know who I'm talking about. This event took place in the fall of 1997. Talk about the dark ages, all right? I was still in college. The fall of 1997. I, I know, do I have any, do I have any Cowboy fans here? Do we have any Cowboy fans? We do, we actually have, oh, that's right, we have one. We'll pray for you after church, okay, Travis? All right. Fall of 1990, I wasn't talking about Oklahoma State. They're good, it's all good, okay. Fall of 1997, the Dallas Cowboys, they beat earlier that Sunday, they beat the, the Jacksonville Jaguars, who were kind of a new team at the time. They came from behind victory. This is kind of the glory days. We're talking the Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith days, you know, and speaking of Emmett Smith, he was a group of four guys. One was Emmett Smith, the other two you probably don't know, maybe Travis would, all right, and the fourth was a guy by the name of Primetime, Deion Sanders, Deion Sanders. And what you have taking place here is that Sunday after the game, they went to church and these four men were baptized that night. Now, they didn't tell too many people about this. They said this was not a show. They said this, and, and they knew what would happen. You're talking Emmett Smith, all right, and Deion Sanders, and a couple of other, one other all-star, okay? We're talking, I mean, it would have been a circus. They kept, they kept it pretty quiet. They had some family. They had friends there. Deion Sanders, I said, they kind of kept this quiet. So after word kind of got out, he was, he was interviewed about this, and asking about what, what took place. You see, Deion's story is a little different. Now, now Emma Smith, I mean, Emma Smith was kind of walk-the-line type of guy, you know. He, he wasn't the rebel, you know. He, he, was the, he was the one, the role model type of guy. Good grief, the guy won Dancing with Stars years later. I mean, goodness, all right. And, and, but, and he was raised in the church and stuff, but he just, he just left it. He just left it, didn't care about it. And looking back, he said it was all, it was all fake. There was nothing real about it. That's kind of his story. Now, Dion's is a little different. He was called primetime for a reason, folks. Matter of fact, what led him to the place of where he ended up in that baptistry, it all started with him trying to drive his, he did, he succeeded in driving his car over a cliff and he dropped 40, 50 feet and he survived it. He said, there's a reason why I survived this, and i got to find it out. And this is what Dion said about that night. He said, the old Dion was buried. He's gone. And when he was getting out of the water with two of, I mean, you're talking about football players here, so you get two ministers in the water with them, all right? So one of them was an offensive lineman. Oh, goodness gracious. You need five guys in there lifting that guy up, all right? So you got two, and they walk out of the baptistry with Dion, and he looks at both of them, and he kind of smirks. I can just see him saying this because he's kind of smart aleck, you know? But it was so genuine. It was so real. He said, somebody's going to have to wash that thing really, really good. They said, there's nothing magical about that water. Dion's sins weren't floating around in the water, wanting to ratchet onto somebody else. No, but what Dion did understand is the past was gone. Jesus took it away. The guilt, the shame, the sin, 
it was gone. He was washed and he was made perfect by the blood of Jesus. He was buried with him so that he could be raised with him. You see, baptism is a big deal. It's an incredible gift of God, and baptism shows us the mighty nature of God's brilliance. I mean, only God could come up with something like this. I already asked you once, how do we get connected with the death, burial, and resurrection of the God-man 2,000 years ago? Through a death, burial, and resurrection of our own. Only God, only God is brilliant enough to come up with something like that. Amen.